0: Well, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus on the island of Crete. It's in your New Testament right before Philemon and Hebrews. Titus will be in the third chapter as we finish our four-sermon series on this short book. I like how Paul ends the letter, grace be with you all, and may now the grace of God be with us all as we turn yet again to his word as he inspired Paul to write it. text this morning will be Titus 3, 1 through 11, specifically. A church in order is the theme of our sermon series this month. And we see that Paul wrote Titus with some instructions so that he could establish orderly churches on the island of Crete. We see that Paul defines the church in chapter 1, verse 1, as God's elect. God chose a people to be his church. He did that broadly across the scope of time and geography and history. But he's also done it very specifically in local congregations. And so God has established throughout the land, throughout the ages, local gatherings of people that he has elected to be his church. And he wants, through Paul's writing, churches to understand what it means to be in order. And order is important to God's people because God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. And God is a holy God. He's not a God who is prone to any form of evil. And so the church, as God's elect, must be in order as God would have it. We've seen in the last three weeks up to this point that A church in order is a church that lives in the knowledge of the truth. Order is established by truth, and truth is established only from the Word of God. And in this truth, a church that lives in order lives in hope of eternal life, which God promised before the ages began. So a church in order is a church that lives in the knowledge of the truth and hopes in that as they wait for God to return in Jesus Christ. We've also seen that a church in order is a church that is led by qualified elders who take upon the task to do the work of leading the church and making sure that they guard the church's doctrine and that in so doing the church's practice is guarded as well. So elders are to bring order to a church by teaching and preaching right doctrine so that the congregation can live right doctrine. And then last week we saw that the church, a church that is in order, is made up of qualified members who live out godly character and who actually do the work of the ministry amongst one another in something that we commonly call discipleship. Older men to younger men, older women to younger women. These are characteristics of a church that is in order. And today we come to chapter 3. And today we see that a church in order is one that is ready for every good work. And Paul here takes our gaze and turns us outside of the congregation, outside of the church and into the world. And we are to live in such a way that we are ready for every good work. And we will define what that means with the text here in just a moment. There's four things that I want to show you from this text, these 11 verses. First of all, we're going to see the charge that we have as the church, as the elect of God, to be ready for every good work. We need to understand what that looks like and what that does not look like. We then need to understand that we're not ready for every good work in and of ourselves, and that there is some bad news about us that we can't ever forget. But then we need to see, number three, that there's some good news about God that we can never forget. That we need to rehearse to one another day in and day out. And then finally, as a result of all of that, we need to see that as a church, as God's elect, there are some things that we need to insist upon as we go forward and some things that we must avoid as we go forward. So let's jump in first of all and let's see first the call that Paul gives us by God, to be ready for every good work. Look with me in verse 1, 1 and 2. Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul has taken our attention from amongst us in chapter 2 and now sends us to gaze upon those outside of us. And we have here some instructions on how we are to behave with the outside world. We have seven commands in that list in verses 1 and 2. They're easily understood. I don't need to break down each one of them. I think upon reading them, you know exactly what they mean. Paul said something similar to this when he wrote to Timothy, who was in the church in Ephesus. This is a big deal in Paul's inspired writings. In 1 Timothy 2, 1-3, through 3, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So Paul's theme with the churches on the island of Crete and Paul's theme with the church of Ephesus is that we are to lead peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives. This pleases God our Savior and that looks like Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 2. So how we conduct ourselves in the public square matters just as much as it matters as how we conduct ourselves amongst our congregations. And at the center, look at the end of verse 1. At the center of this list is this call to be ready for every good work. We've got to be very careful here. This is an important phrase, and we must not get this wrong. Many have gotten this wrong. Good works never save us. We're to be ready for every good work, but not because these good works are going to bring salvation to us. Good works instead demonstrate our salvation. If we get those two in the reverse order and we think that good works save us, We're going to be all about bad works, and God's not going to embrace them. The Bible is consistently clear. We are intended by God to do good works. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Ephesus. For we are His workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's the order. We're created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Our good works don't get us right in Christ Jesus. And then it says that God prepared these good works beforehand so that we should walk in them. So God has a great design. He saves us for the purpose of doing good works amongst ourselves and in the outside world. We've got to get that right. So we are created in Christ. We are saved in Christ. And God intends us to do something with that salvation. We don't keep it to ourselves. We work good works with this salvation. And this is God's doing. He prepared it beforehand. It is his sovereign design that we be about good works. So Paul says just right there in the first words of this chapter, remind them. Remind them be submissive to rulers to be obedient to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people and we needed to be reminded of that and we also need to be reminded of something else we need to be reminded of before christ who we were and that's where he goes next we're to act like verses one and two and in so doing, we need to remember who we were in verse 3. And it's not pretty. Let's look at the bad news about us and why we need this reminder. Verse 3, Paul says, For, or because, we ourselves, and Paul includes himself in that, we ourselves, we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a list. Six former character qualities of a today born again Christian. If you're a Christian here today, you have to remember that these were true of you and me before Christ. We all were once foolish, so there was a time that all of our thinking was wrong, period. There was a time when we were all disobedient. Our wrong thinking led to wrong behavior. And it gets worse. We were all led astray. We were all submitted to evil that led us away from God. Further and further and further. And it gets worse than that. We were slaves to various passions and pleasure. We were in bondage to this way that was leading us astray. Our minds were in bondage. Our behavior was in bondage. And then we were passing our days in malice and envy. We were totally depraved. And everything that we did was evil and wicked before Christ. And then lastly, we were hated by others and we hated one another. So even our relationships with people were totally broken. This is who we were before we were found in Christ. And we're to remember what we should be doing and not be doing, and we also must remember who we once were. This description here that Paul gives, these six characteristics of someone before Christ, is a description of every human being ever made who is living without the Lordship of Jesus Christ reigning over them. The best way we can appreciate this is to understand who we were before Christ and then we have a greater understanding for who we are today in Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Roman church. It's just in line with what he says here to Titus. Romans 3:10 and following, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. That's a biblical description of all of us before Jesus Christ. And it's a hopeless picture. And we're to remember this as we consider our ways. We don't live in it, but we are to recall it. And there's a great purpose of why we are to remember this. We must never gloss over who we once were so that we never gloss over who Paul tells us we are now in these next verses. So now look at verse 4. Verse 3 was the bad news about us, but 4 through 7 is the good news about God. And therefore, there's good news that will be had for us. In verse 4 we begin, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. What a gift God has given us in even communicating what He's done in these verses. And look first, we have another appearance. If you remember last Sunday, we we said that we live between two appearings. The grace of God had appeared in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, all the way through His cross and resurrection. And the glory of God will appear one day when Christ comes again. And we live right in between these two appearings. And here we have another appearance. We have the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior who appeared. This again is a reference to Jesus Christ's taking on flesh. God the Son taking on flesh. So we understand just from Titus here in a few verses that Jesus Christ is the grace of God. Jesus Christ is the glory of God coming. And Jesus Christ is the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. God reveals Himself fully in Jesus Christ only. Only. So Jesus Christ appears. He was foretold of through the centuries by the prophets. But in these last days, He has appeared. And not only that, in the flesh, in His appearance, He died on the cross and He rose from the dead and He ascended back to heaven and He will. Come again one day. Well in these verses 4 through 7. We're going to focus right here this morning. In these four verses. We have three truths about the appearance of God's goodness. And loving kindness in Christ. And we must dwell on these things today. The first one is this. God saves us by his mercy. And that is the best news I could ever proclaim to you. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is so much more. We are Romans chapter 3, 10 through 18. We are chapter 3, verse 3 of Titus before Christ. Our sins have mounted up and they are many. But we're going to see right here that God's mercy overcomes all of that in Jesus Christ. He saved us, verse 5 says, not because of works done by us in righteousness. I've already dealt with that. But according to His own mercy. Let's look at that. The text is emphatic. It's not because of us, but it's because of God's own mercy. It's emphatic. It's His mercy. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We know that verse well. And that is so true. As I read and prepared this week, I read one commentator, and I want to share his illustration with you. He said, what if God were to take a sheet of paper out like we often do, and as we're trying to make a decision or make a purchase, we list the pros and the cons on the sheet of paper. Balance this thing out and see what we ought to do here. Well, if God wrote out the pros and the cons of you and me, it would be a totally lopsided list to the right. It would be full of cons. And there would not be one pro about us. God would look at us and He would see us for who we really are, totally depraved, totally in bondage to wickedness, demented minds, faulty behaviors, and we could not seek after God, no, not even one of us. And so he would see nothing but cons, nothing but negatives, nothing but evil in us. This is what Paul is telling us. But God looks at this pros and cons list that's full of cons. And he does something that you and I don't do when we see such. He says, cons that there may be all of. You are covered in cons. I will cover you with my kindness. I will cover you with my love. I will cover you with my mercy. My own mercy. There's nothing about you that is pleasant to me. But in my loving kindness. I'm going to cover all of that with my mercy. And My mercy is going to be revealed in the form of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is. Therefore, because of all this, begins with God. It does not begin with any pro about us. Our salvation begins with God. This is why we are are drawn to verse 1 of chapter 1. We are God's elect. God elected to save us with His own mercy. We didn't coax Him into this. We didn't even campaign for it. In spite of who we were, In His mercy, God does not give us what we deserve, and we deserved His wrath. Instead, in God's mercy, He gave His wrath for sure against all of our sins, but He gave His wrath to Himself, God the Son, Jesus Christ on the cross. There's His mercy, His own mercy, that covers all of our cons. He saved us not because of our works, He saved us because of his work in the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's why and how he saved us. He gave himself for us at great personal cost. And quite honestly, it didn't cost us anything. But to walk away from our filthy rags and embrace his white robes. So this is the goodness and loving kindness and the mercy of God. I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 2, maybe verse 10. Verse 8. This has got to be read right here. For, the, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This morning, we cannot boast in anything but the mercy of God. If we had anything to brag about, it would be our sinfulness. Do you understand this? But we smile when we boast about the mercy of God. And so what are we to do with this first point of God's loving kindness? What do we what do? We do? Well, I think we look at this and it should draw us to a position of humility. We need to understand that we're not as good as we thought we were. And we are to understand that God is much greater than we thought him to be. That's the truth. And we're to remind one another of these things. Often. The second point is this. God, after giving us his mercy, God then regenerates us. With his Spirit. Look at this in the rest of verse five. He he does this by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So God not only forgives us and saves us in mercy, he does something more than that. He regenerates us. And Paul says he does this through the washing and regeneration of of the Spirit. What does regeneration mean? We don't use that word every day, but it's right there in the text. Regeneration, let's talk about what it is not. It is not improvement. Regeneration is not merely improvement. We are not living badly and then through an improvement program, we now live better. That's not what regeneration is. Regeneration is best used in the term that we see in John 3: born again, regenerated, remade. We were dead and then we were reborn to new life. This is regeneration, and God has promised it from long ago. I want to show you this in Ezekiel chapter 36. Please turn with me there in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. right before the book of daniel we'll read a couple of verses here we'll be back and forth just a little bit ezekiel 36 starting in verse 25 this is under the concept of regeneration and what god does in people that are dead ezekiel 36 verse 25 i will sprinkle clean water on you there's the washing Analogy that Paul seems to be dialing into. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There is the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit foretold of by God, through the prophet Ezekiel, hundreds of years earlier. We have the washing that Paul talks about. Because God says he's going to sprinkle clean water on us. This is not a reference to baptism, but baptism is a reference to this. He is going to wash us. And then the regeneration language. Look in verse 26. I will give you a new heart. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is regeneration of the heart. It's not improving the current heart. It's removal and installing a new one. And with this new heart, that's a heart that's soft to the truths of God, now God can dwell within us in God the Spirit. And in so doing, we see that God causes us to walk in His statutes and to be careful to obey His rules. God is the cause for our obedient living. God is the cause for our faithful belief. So listen, unless the Spirit works in our hearts like this, unless God the Holy Spirit works, we will not even want the mercy of God. We won't want it. This is how desperate we are for God to work in us. If you have decided that Christ died on the cross, that He was born of a virgin before that, and that He lived a sinless life, and then if you believe that He died on the cross and rose again on the third day, you have not done that on your own. God, the Holy Spirit, has revealed this to you and given you a heart that would embrace it. And you must pray That you would stay in step with the Spirit. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And you don't understand this virgin birth and crucifixion and resurrection. I want you to know it's the most important truth you could ever hear. And it's the most important thing you could ever believe. And I would challenge you this morning to plead with God. The Holy Spirit to grant you a soft heart towards those truths. So that you might believe. And no longer be. Corrupted in mind, and action, led astray, wicked, hating others while being hated, so on and so forth. The freedom from all of that is found in Christ alone, and your embracing of Christ alone will happen only through the work of the Holy Spirit giving you a regenerate heart. So what would you do with this truth, that the Holy Spirit regenerates us so that we can accept the truth of Jesus Christ. Well, that should prompt in us a response of thanksgiving. Humility as we look at the mercy of God, but thanksgiving as we look at the regenerate work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We should be the most thankful people because we have a right understanding of who we once were and what God did in spite of that. Number three. First, we need to be humble because of the mercy of God and the salvation that He gives us. Then we need to be thankful for the regeneration that we get through the Holy Spirit. And now, number three, we need to see that God keeps us, starting in verse 7. So that, here's the purpose for all of this. So that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God keeps His elect forever. He guarantees that by his grace and mercy, we will be heirs of eternal life. We will inherit eternal life. This coincides with exactly what he said back in Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel 36, now verse 28. After saying that he's going to regenerate us, He then says, You shall dwell, and he's speaking to Israel at the time, by the way, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. In other words, you will inherit the promised land across the river Jordan. And he says, I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will do this. And so they will inherit the land of God, the land that God promised. And we will inherit something greater, something that the promised land pointed to, the new heavens and the new earth, and eternal life with God in His presence until the ages never end. And so we need to remember that we live in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the beginning. And so he will keep us to fulfill that promise that he made. And it is the last promise that we're waiting for fulfillment. There's no question that this inheritance will be received. John chapter 10, Christ says this to his disciples at the moment as well as us who follow. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So our inheritance is guaranteed. God will keep us after regenerating us, after saving us in His mercy. What are we to do with that? We're to live with confidence. Right here and now. We can confidently live In our forgiven, regenerate state, confidently knowing that what God has promised, God will fulfill. And no matter what this world brings at us, our confidence cannot and must not waver. So there we have three things that we see about the loving kindness and goodness of God in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And with those three things, we then go to Paul's final words to Titus and these churches in Crete. And his final words are summed up in two words, really. One is to insist, and the other is to avoid. He says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. What saying is that? It's the saying that God in his mercy saved us. God the Holy Spirit regenerated us. And God Himself will promise our inheritance. That saying is trustworthy. And He says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. These things are what a church in order embraces, is what He says. Insist on these things. Insist on what? The gospel, God saves, God regenerates, and God keeps us to the very end. Insist on that to one another and to the world outside. The gospel is trustworthy. It is to be insisted upon. It is excellent and profitable for us and every human being made in the image of God. It must be what we preach about. It must be what we sing about. It must be what we give to. It must be what we go and tell. It must be what we remember. It must be what we hope for. The gospel must be our center. And in so doing, we will be ready for every good work. So one way that we insist on these things, and we see this played out in our lives is we make sure that we insist on these beliefs in membership. And as new people come to this church, the urge is that this gospel truth is insisted upon to join us. Sit amongst us if you don't believe it, you're welcome here, but you must insist on this being believed and embraced for someone to join the membership of the church. And insisting on it, you're actually sharing the gospel with people that need the truth that it is. Next, we're to avoid. Look in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. We're to avoid that that is unprofitable and worthless. And it must not be named amongst us. So church, we must strive hard to maintain sound doctrine. We recite sound doctrine to one another. We require sound doctrine for membership. And then amongst us, if sound doctrine is is foregone... and and weakened, we must, in this text, we must confront someone. We must confront with the purpose to restore them. But if they cannot and will not be restored to sound doctrine, the text says that they are to be removed. We are to have nothing more to do with such. This is what was taught about last Wednesday night by Colton and Jeff. Church discipline. There is a place for it. And it's found whenever doctrine is being questioned and challenged and weakened. Any who would threaten the status of sound doctrine in the church must be confronted. Paul warns us to avoid such people. They're divisive. We are to take this division in the church seriously. He says, warn them once, warn them a second time, and then if they don't bend have nothing to do with them. Why? Because to embrace such people long-term is perilous to the church. And to allow a person to live in that false belief is eternally perilous to them. Back in Titus 1, verse 10 and 11, Paul says, "...there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers." They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Those whole families are congregations because back then the church was meeting in households. And false doctrine was upsetting congregations in the cities on Crete. And they are to be rejected, corrected, and if so, removed. They won't bend. So church discipline must be practiced along with good quality church membership practices as well. And we need to understand that we as a church have got to get these things right. We must insist on the gospel and we must avoid those who pervert it. That's how we keep our way straight and that's how we are ready for every good work. The reality of it is, in our day and age, and I think it's probably been true for 2,000 years of church history, too often churches avoid controversy and sacrifice the gospel. And Paul's charge here, as as he finishes his letter to Titus, is do not avoid gospel controversy. For in so doing, you will weaken the doctrine of the gospel that has formed you and that God elected you with. And too often, churches stress on the other end, stress controversies, and minimize the gospel. Can't be that church either. We've got to remember this trustworthy saying, and we've got to be centered upon that day in and day out. We must talk about the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And we must talk about these things more than anything else as we live life together, waiting on our inheritance that has been promised. So those are Paul's final words to Titus that he is to pass on to the churches on the island of Crete. And as I conclude, I want to ask you to turn your attention back to verse 4 of Titus 3. God has provided everything for our salvation and everything that should follow in our salvation. God has provided... His goodness and loving kindness in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, God saved us. Not because of anything that we've done. Not because of our intelligence. Not because of our strength. He saved us according to His own mercy. And He's done this Through the work of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So that by seeing the Trinitarian work of God in our lives, we can have hope and confidence as we cast our gaze towards the eternal life that is soon to come. So this morning I say to you, church, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to remember how you got here and I want you to be ready for every good work. Today and for all the days to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your loving kindness. We thank you that you saved us in spite of our works. We ask you to forgive us when we have put credit for our salvation on our works. The works that have saved us, Father, are the works of your Son taking on flesh, living without sin, dying in our place, and rising on the third day. These are the works that save us. And it is my prayer that as a church, because we believe in the works of Christ, we are then ready to do all good works that you have ordained for us. Father, you regenerated us. By giving us new hearts and indwelling us with your Holy Spirit. And we understand that being justified by this grace and mercy. We have become heirs of something that you've promised before the ages began. And I ask now that you would encourage us and strengthen us and carry us. As we look back to the cross of Christ and look forward to his return. And in the between those two gazes you would find us faithful to do every good work you have ordained. And we pray this in the strong name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.